in us both. Let him take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, now we come before this your word. We thank you for it and ask that your spirit would take this word and, and feed our soul. Show us the beauty of our Lord. And uh, Lord, give us deepened faith this morning in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, here we are in the uh, fourth Sunday of live-streamed worship. Uh, this coming Tuesday will mark the second full week of living under uh, shelter in place. In other words, we've been at this long enough to sort of uh, discover some things, uh, things that maybe we hadn't expected. I think there's been maybe for some of you some happy surprises in this quarantine. You found that you get to uh, sit together around the separate tables of family, uh, uninterrupted by busy schedules. Um, maybe you're finding time to read books that you've been wanting to read for a long time. You have time to take walks. You have time to have conversations, uh, complete home projects, do devotions. It's been some happy uh, surprises. Um, I, I'm sure that for some of us, there are also some unhappy surprises. Uh, maybe the discovery that you've been living your life at such a frantic pace that you've neglected your soul and, and now God maybe seems uh, distant from you. Maybe you found that your marriage isn't uh, as healthy as you thought it was. Or maybe your family is not as united as you had assumed it was now that you're all together all the time under one roof. Uh, maybe temptation to a besetting sin has returned and uh, you find that you're not as strong as you thought you were. Uh, times like these, times of suffering, are oftentimes uh, of exposing. The times where uh, God exposes things to us that we wouldn't ordinarily see. One of the things that <clears throat> surprises me about the suffering of Job is how God uses it to expose the false assumptions and mistaken faith of Job's three friends. Uh, they come to Job to comfort him. Um, as we're going to see, they end up uh, accusing him, very strongly accusing him, and, and uh, consequently, not only do they fail in their uh, attempt to comfort Job, but they uh, fail in simple obedience, they offend God. And they offend God greatly. At the end of the book, God is going to rebuke them, and uh, Job will have to give an offering for their sin. In other words, uh, little did these uh, three men realize that while they are indicting and analyzing Job's faith, God is analyzing and indicting their faith. They're on the block, and they're exposed. Uh, last week I said that uh, that was part one. Well, um, this is part two as we look at what I'm calling the system. I've taken that from Chris, uh, Christopher Ash's commentary. The system, a way of thinking and seeing the world, a religious way of thinking and seeing the world that characterizes uh, these three friends. And so we're going to begin, first of all, looking at uh, Bildad's speech. <coughs> Excuse me. As we're invited again uh, to sit in on this conversation that Job is having with his friends. Well, um, they're debating, why has this happened to Job? And where's God? And how does this make sense? For Job's three friends, the issue is, is very straightforward and can be explained in uh, some easy steps. Uh, first, 
God is absolutely sovereign. This is what, these are the basic premises of the system. God is absolutely sovereign so that he is the primary cause of both good and evil. Secondly, God is perfectly just, which means that he punishes evildoers and blesses the righteous. That's what he does. Third, Job is clearly being punished by God. Therefore, it is evident, it's clear to them, that Job must have sinned against God. Uh, Nothing could be more clear to these men. But, fourth, God is merciful to those who turn away from sin and embrace righteousness. God does good things for good people. So if Job will just repent of his sin, turn away from his sin, and once again walk in holiness, God will bless him. That's the way it works. It's not a complicated system. Good things come to good people. Bad things come to bad people. And here in in chapter 8, we come to the first speech of Bildad, and uh, we find the system in very pure form. Bildad is most likely the youngest of the three. Uh, He's certainly the rashest of the three. He's an eager young man with more answers than insight, uh, but he is uh, boldly plows into the conversation and, um, because he's, he's astounded at what he's heard from Job's mouth. Eliphaz, the eldest, went first. He, he uh, offered his counsel to Job. Job was offended, and Job responded strongly. And to be fair to Bildad, Job has said things that would make the eyes of a religious person, a righteous person, uh, sort of go up and their ears perk up. Job has said things like verse 16 of chapter 7, I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. He's not talking there to his friends. He's talking to God. Leave me alone. Verse 20, if I sin, he says to God, What do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? I mean, Job is is standing there, sitting there on his ash heap, scraping the rotting skin from his flesh, and he's trying to draw a line between uh, what has happened to him and and, uh, the sin his friends are accusing him him of, and it's not working. And even if he had sinned, well, why doesn't God remove it? And what harm could it do to God? He's God. So Job, this puny little man on planet earth, has done something that has offended him. Well, what harm is it to you? And why, if I've sinned, why don't you forgive me? Why don't you, why don't you pardon me? That's why he was making sacrifices. You see, Job is wrestling with God in a very bold, upfront um, way. He's, he's, he's holding nothing back. This is how it seems to him. This is how he feels. But Bildad can't believe what he's hearing. And his speech then begins with a sense of shocked incredulity. It, it just bursts out of him. How long will you say these things? Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert the right? Uh, these are, of course, rhetorical questions. They're more accusations than inquiries. He's not asking Job, what do you actually think? He's rebuking Job. Does God pervert justice? And the answer, of course, is no. God doesn't pervert justice, ever. 
So Bildad is absolutely correct in his affirmation of the perfect justice of God. And Bildad, we could even say, we could grant him as a young man, um, we understand why he's offended. Um, Job has said some offensive sorts of things. So Bildad is he's correct in affirming the justice of God. He, we could even say it's, we can understand that he's offended by, by Job's uh, words that seem to challenge these truths about God. But where Bildad is completely wrong is his understanding about Job. Um, Bildad, you see, in his own mind, he's got, this, he's got this thing figured out. He had to figure it out before he left the house. There's no mystery here. God is just. Job is suffering God's punishment. Therefore, ipso facto, Job has sinned. Uh, that's as evident to Bildad as the nose on his face. And so Bildad sees his job is to just to break into this, this crazy talk of Job, bring him to his senses, and, and, and get him to repent. And he uses strong medicine. He goes directly to the most painful aspect of this suffering, which would certainly be the death of Job's children. And notice what he says in verse 4. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. You see, Bildad, just right in Job's face, said, let's just cut to the chase, Job. Given what we know to be true about God, your children just got what they deserved. Just, just face the fact. Why are they dead? Well, it's evident. They're dead at the hand of God, and God being just has put them to death because they've sinned. God has simply delivered them into the hand of their transgression. They are paying for their sins. That is the system in its purest and coldest form. Of course, Bildad has no evidence that the children have sinned. But the system, you see, um, says you don't need evidence. Bad things happen to bad people. It's all the evidence that's required. Good things happen to good people. Now, that is not a worldview that's strange to us. It's the default conviction of all mankind. And it's catechized, right, in various Proverbs. Uh, what goes around comes around. Your sins will find you out. Christopher Ash mentions a, a Peanuts cartoon where Lucy um, says to Charlie Brown, uh, there's one thing you're going to have to learn, Charlie Brown. You reap what you sow. You get out of life what you put into it, no more and no less. Snoopy mutters from the corner, I'd like to see some kind of margin for error. And wouldn't we all? See, Lucy is just a modern-day Bildad. She's just speaking the tradition of the fathers. You know, that's what Bildad appeals to um, in, his, in his, his speech. Inquire, please, of bygone ages. Consider what the fathers have searched out. Bildad's saying, this isn't my idea. This is commonly received wisdom. This is how the world works. 
And this is how people understand the world to work. Back in Acts 28, we have a fascinating story. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul is shipwrecked. And everyone uh, survives by the the grace of God. They all end up on the beach, soaking wet. It's cold. It's raining. And uh, and so they start a fire. The the, the people there start a fire. And uh, they're on the island of Malta to, to help people warm up. Well, Paul grabs a pile of sticks to throw it into the fire. As he, uh, as he takes that, uh, that pile of sticks over, a poisonous viper comes out of the sticks, latches onto Paul's hand. And uh, the people, verse, uh, Acts 28, 4, when the native people saw the creature hanging from his, Paul's hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. You don't escape karma. You don't escape the fixed moral law of the universe. It will catch up to you. You are going to pay. That's what they believed. That's what Lucy believes. That's what we often tend to believe. You do the crime. You're going to do the time. In one way or another, that is uh, how the world works. That is how God is going to deal with you. Haven't you ever suffered some uh, great loss? Maybe a series of losses? One bad thing happens after another, and you, just, and you, and you thought to yourself, I'm sure God must be punishing me for something, and you can probably think of the something. I didn't do this, or I did do that. This is God, this is God punishing me for my sins. Maybe you've even said to God, just show me what it is and I'll, I'll repent. Show me what I've done wrong so I can, I can confess it and repent from it and the, this trial can go away. You see, that's man's default religious conviction and it's, the, it's what drives the counsel of Job's three friends. We're not going to go, uh, I, don't, I don't intend to go through every one of the speeches. There, each friend gives three speeches, that's nine speeches. I don't intend to go through each of them because they all, are, and they all end up saying the same thing. What we find happening in the recurring pattern of speeches is they just get more adamant and more bold with charging Job with wrong. For instance, Zophar, the third friend, uh, says in chapter 11, verse 6, listen to what he says to Job. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. In other words, he says to Job, not only are you suffering for your sins, but you should be thankful that you're not suffering what you actually deserve. This is Job's friend speaking to him. As he has lost everything. And he did no wrong. By the time Eliphaz gets to his final speech, chapter 22, he is hurling all sorts of crazy, angry accusations at Job. Listen to this, chapter 22, verse 5. He says to Job, Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You've given no water to the weary to drink. You have withheld bread from the hungry. You've sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Job, you are a despicable, vicious man. Well, 
none of it is true. It's not even remotely true. God himself has declared Job to be a blameless and upright man. Someone who loves the Lord his God and loves his neighbor as himself, unlike anyone else in the whole East. So what has happened to these men? Why are they tormenting Job this way? Just imagine. Imagine that you were arrested for no other reason than you were a Christian. You professed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And you're thrown into a dirty prison and beaten. And then you have angry men yelling at you charging you with all sorts of grotesque and wicked crimes you would never even dream of doing, and then demanding that you confess. Demanding that you admit it. That you sign the confessional. And now imagine that your friends were doing this to you. Just think of the injustice you would feel. The, the, the moral twilight zone you would sense that you're in. This, this makes no sense. It's so twisted. It's so evil. How did these good men, these are not wicked, evil men. These are good men. They, 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 they believe in, in Job's God. So how did these good, well-intentioned men end up pulling their hair out and screaming these accusations at Job. How did they end up doing these terrible things to him? Well, there's several reasons, but the primary one is that they're, they're, they're driven by and speaking out of the system. They're speaking out of an understanding of the world and of God that is fundamentally legalistic, religious, and the tradition of their elders but it is not a true understanding of the character of God. And so you find these men doing to Job precisely what the Pharisees did to Jesus. They accused Jesus of being a drunkard, of being a sinner, accused Jesus of, of blasphemy, of violent, vicious crimes, though he was perfectly innocent of all of them, and they did that thinking they were speaking for God and applying truths concerning God. They were convinced they were righteous in their speech. Well, that's exactly what Job's friends are doing. You see, one of the great ironies of this book is that these men think they're speaking for God, but they're actually mouthpieces for the devil. They are taking Satan's side. Satan accused Job of having a faith that lacked integrity. And he said to God, you just take things away from him, you'll see his faith has no integrity. He does not worship you for who you are, he worships you for what you give. Satan is the accuser. It's what Satan means, accuser. Well, these men have taken Satan's side. They have become the accusers. Howell Jones in his commentary says, Job is facing more than human opposition here. The father of lies is perpetuating a wicked distortion of the truth. You see, one of Satan's most effective weapons is to say, take some truth about God, slightly twist it, or leave off other uh, 
things that are true. So he'll take a portion of truth and then use that to bludgeon God's people, uh, to, to tempt them into despair. You see, nearly everything that Job's friends say about God, what they say about God, it's hard to find fault with it. God, God is perfect. God is sovereign. But they only have a portion of the truth about God and end up bludgeoning a righteous man. You see, what they're missing is the deep things of God. The fact that God is uh, he's not just sovereign. He's, he is good and gracious. So when God reveals himself, for instance, in Exodus 34, verse 6, God doesn't say, the sovereign Lord who does only what is right. Those are those are two true things about God. And he'll say that in other places. But how does God reveal himself to Moses in Exodus 34, verse 6? When Moses says, show me your glory, God says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, those are the things that you see that Job's friends have, have closed their minds to, if they knew them at all. Because you see, if they believed those things, they'd be sitting with Job in the ash heap and say, what is God doing? How, do, how does this suffering fit with, with what we know to be true, that he's merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness? That is the reality about God that is, uh, that is making Job to question God. He said, he said, Job is basically saying, I thought you were these things. But I don't know how to reconcile mercy and grace and compassion and slow to anger with my experience. And so these men are arguing out of a purely legal system. Even their counsel, even Bildad's counsel for Job to repent is couched in law. He says in verse 5 and 6 to Job, If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, well then he will rouse himself for you. So Job, um, if you just become worthy again, if you become righteous again and upright again, turning from your sin, um, God will bless. You see, that's the system. It's inherently legalistic. It roots the relationship between God and man in the worth of the man. That's the essence of legalism. That's the essence of the system. It, root, it roots the relationship between God and man in the worth of the man, the moral worth of the man. But Job is coming to realize that the system is not sufficient. And that's then uh, how he begins in chapter 9. Job answered and said, truly, I know that it is so. He, he's believed the system. Uh, not just, he, Job had a, a much more expansive, it seems, view of God. But I know that God does not pervert justice. But Job says, how can a man be in the right before God? And through the rest of the chapter, he's wrestling with this great chasm that exists between Job the creature and God the creator. Job does not, he does not believe that he sinned in a way to deserve this, but, but he recognizes, I'm just, a, I'm just a creature. How can a man be on equal standing and have a conversation and, and, and work this out with God? Verse 32, he is not a man as I am that I might answer him. 
that we should come to trial together. I'm, I'm just this pitiful creature of vapor, here today, gone tomorrow, and he's God. He has all power, all wisdom. He speaks a word and mountains disappear. You see, the chasm is too great. And then verse 33, would that there were an arbiter between us. That's, that's the only hope. Would that there were an arbiter between us, someone who might lay his hand upon us both. You have the, the image of, of, of two parties that aren't getting along and a third party comes along and says, come now. Brother, brother, let's, let's work this out. Someone who can mediate, someone who can intercede. The NIV says that if only there were someone to mediate between us. That's Job's heart desire. If there was just someone who could, who could intercede and, and mediate, lay his hand upon us both, someone who could bridge the gulf between God and man. He would have to be truly man to stand in our place, but he'd have to also be God, or at least an equal with God, in order to speak with God. If only there was someone like this who could reconcile, who could cross the great chasm and bring peace between God and men. I need a mediator. I need an intercessor. If only such a person existed. But it seems impossible. Who could ever do this? My friends, Job's prophetic wish is answered in Scripture, isn't it? The whole point of Scripture is to, to proclaim the good news of a mediator. A mediator. Who does exactly this? 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. He puts his hand upon both. The good news of the gospel is that God was in Christ reconciling the world of sinful men to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. We have a mediator in our Lord Jesus. Hebrews 7.25, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. You see, in the Gospel, we have the whole truth about God. We have the truth that God is perfectly just and does not pervert justice. Right? In the cross, God reveals that that he is infinitely just. The cross answers the question, shall God pervert justice? And the answer is no. He shall not pervert justice, even if it means placing his only beloved son on the cross to die for and atone for sin. God will not pervert justice to the slightest degree. Right? If, 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 if you're living in sin and you think that your sin is not a big deal or that God's holiness is not something you're going to have to contend with, Look at the cross. God will never pervert justice. But the glory of the cross is that God has found a way both to maintain and express His justice and show mercy and grace to sinners. That God is found to be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. As He made the spotless, innocent Lamb bear our sin and punish Christ in our place, well, then God is reconciled us to himself. God made him who had no sin to be, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. 
And that makes all the difference, you see, in the way that we should think about the world and, and, and uh, the, the difference in our relationship with God. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see Christ there who made an end to all my sin. It's not just a story. Jesus Christ stands in the presence of God and intercedes for you. He is our righteousness. Let me wrap up by just applying and helping you see the difference this can make in your life. I think it is epidemic. You want to talk about an epidemic? Uh, In the church, we have this, this pandemic of saying we believe the gospel, but living by the system. So we live with secret fears and regrets because of past sins, grievous sins, and present weaknesses, grievous weaknesses. And I say these things with authority. I know, I've done this. The gospel has to drag me out of the system all the time. And when you counsel yourself, you sound like Job's three friends. I need to try harder. I need to do better. I need to get better at my devotions. I need to be more godly. I'm only getting what I deserve. I shouldn't expect great things from God. I am too great a sinner. I am too weak a saint. My only hope is just to kind of keep my head down and hope that somewhere some, somewhere down the road, sometime in the future, I'll be good enough to have a sense of assurance that God really loves me. But in the meantime, you see, we counsel ourselves with Satan's counsel tormenting ourselves with self-accusation and self-condemnation. Well, friends, if if I've just described you, I have very good news for you. Uh, You've been living in the system. Jesus invites you to live in the gospel. God has, Paul says, in Christ, reconciled you to himself, not counting your transgressions against you. Your life is not being driven by the consequences of your past sins and failures and present weaknesses. That's not what's driving your life. Your life is being driven by the loving purposes of your heavenly Father. That doesn't mean there aren't consequences to our sin. Of course there are. But everything that we would call a consequence is actually a loving providence. Every single thing, even if it's a hurtful thing, that ever comes into your life is not there by chance. It's not there by the rule of sowing and reaping. It's there by the loving hand of your Father in heaven. The driving principle that saturates your life, the the, the driving principle that directs your life is not the law of sowing and reaping, but the law of the gospel. Hear the law of the gospel. Do you know what it is? May grace and peace be multiplied to you in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the law of the gospel. And that every circumstance, every event that you will experience as a child of God is there by the purpose of God, the loving purpose of God to do His work in you to glorify his name through you, to multiply grace and peace upon you. 
That's the gospel. Let's believe it. Let's live in it. Let's share it. Let's honor the Lord by resting in it. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, God in heaven, I thank you that you've answered Job's wish with a resounding, beautiful Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is precisely the mediator that we needed, the intercessor that was required. God, I pray that your gospel would set us free from our legalism, from our despair, from our fears, that you would open our eyes to see the Lord, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. You do not leave the guilty unpunished. But, oh, Father, thank you that you've been willing to punish the guilty in your own Son, Jesus Christ, so that the guilty might be robed with righteousness. Father, I pray that your people could live in this truth and share this truth and that we'd find our fears to be dispelled, our despair uh, just removed, that joy and peace would flood into our lives as we, as we grasp the truth of your great, present, mighty, unending love for us in Jesus Christ our Lord. And may you receive the glory. Amen. <clears throat> Let's respond to the word of God this morning. Uh, I will sing of my Redeemer, the one who bought us back and mediates and intercedes for us. Let's stand and sing.
I am his forevermore. That's the gospel truth. I'd like to close our service this morning just reading from Jude, verse 20. Uh, But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Uh, Jesus says, abide in my love. means receive it, believe it, trust it, rest in it. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, able to present you blameless, before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Receive God's blessing. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you through our Lord Jesus Christ by the ministry of the Holy Spirit according to the will of God the Father. Amen.
Good morning, boys and girls. Come on up to the front. We're going to start out with Hebrews 12.1. Uh, whoops. It is a hallelujah morning. There it is. Hebrews 12.1, let us run the race marked out for us.